Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of John Doe and the Cherub by L. Frank Baum. Volume 3. Chapter 5. The Freaks of Free. So John mounted more marble stairs until, finally, Chick brought him to a handsome apartment on the third story. Here we are, cried the baby. Now make yourself at home, John, for we need not fear the king until tomorrow morning. And then he'll have forgotten that I fooled him. Our hero's first act was to take off the blunderer's heavy armor and pile it in one corner of the room. When free from the weight of metal, he felt more like himself again. He walked to the window to view the scenery. It is a pretty place, Cheek, he remarked. Oh, the isle is all right, answered the child. It's the people here that are all wrong, as you'll soon find out. Do you ever eat, John Doe? Never, said John. Then, while you're waiting here, I'll go over to the dairy and get my milk for tea. You don't mind if I leave you for a few minutes, do you? Not at all, he declared. But it has just started to rain outside. You'll get wet, won't you? Well, that's nothing, laughed Chick. I won't melt. It is different for me, said John sadly. If my gingerbread body got soaked, it would fall to pieces. That made the little one laugh again, and it ran merrily from the room and left John Doe alone to stare out the window. There was a projecting cornice overhead, so he had pushed his head well out to observe the pretty scenery, when suddenly he heard a voice say in a tone of astonishment, Hello, neighbor. Turning to the left, he saw sticking out of the next window to his own a long, bald head that slanted up to a peak, underneath which appeared a little withered face that was smiling in a most friendly manner. John bowed politely. Well, well, said the owner of the bald head. Here's another curiosity come to our island. Wait a minute, and I'll run in and make your acquaintance. So presently the bald head, which was perched upon the body of a little dried-up-looking man, entered John's room and bowed politely. I'm surprised, Box, he said. And the remarkable thing about me is I'm an inventor, and a successful one. You, I perceive, are a delicatessen, a friend in need, I might say. A pan-American. <laughs> please do make your acquaintance, returned John Bowing. But please do not joke about my person, surprise. I'm quite proud of it. I respect your pride, sir, said the other. It's bread in the bone, doubtless. Ha! <laughs> John looked at him reproachfully, and the little man at once grew grave. This island is full of inventors, he said. But they're all cranks, and don't amount to anything. Except me. What have you invented? asked John. This, said the other, taking a little tube from his pocket. You will notice it often rains here. It's raining now, if you look outside. And the reason it rains is because the drops of water fall to the earth by the attraction of gravitation. I suppose so, said John. Now what do people usually do when it rains? asked the little man. They grumble, said John. Yes, and they use umbrellas. Umbrellas, mind you, to keep themselves dry. Well, that is quite sensible, declared John. The bald-headed one gave a scornful laugh. 
It's ridiculous, he said angrily. An umbrella is a big clumsy thing that wind jerks out of your hand or turns inside out. It's a nuisance to carry around and people always borrow it and never bring it back. An umbrella, sir, is a humbug, a relic of the Dark Ages. I've done away with the use of umbrellas entirely by means of this invention in this little tube, which can be carried in one's pocket. He held up a small instrument that looked like a tin whistle. How curious, said John. Isn't it? You see, within this tube is stored a power of repulsion that overcomes the attraction of gravitation and sends the raindrops flying upward again. You stick the tube in your hat band and walk out boldly into the rain. Immediately, all the raindrops shoot up into the air and before they can fall again, you've passed on. It's always dry where the wearer of this tube goes. It protects him perfectly. And when it stops raining, you put it in your pocket again, and it's all ready for another time. Isn't it great, sir? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't the inventor of this tube the greatest man in the whole world? I'd like to try it, said John. For no one needs protection from the rain more than I do. Being made of gingerbread, it would ruin me to get wet. True agreed the other. I'll lend you the tube with pleasure. Stick it in a hat band. I have no hat, said John. And then he remembered he had left both the baker's hat and his candy cane lying on the sands where he had first fallen. Well, carry the tube in your hand then. It'll work just as well that way, but just not so convenient. So John took the tube, and having thanked the bald-headed man for his kindness, he left the room and walked down the stairs through the big empty hall, and out into the courtyard. The rain seemed to have driven everyone indoors, for not a person could be seen. Holding the tube upright, he walked boldly into the rain, and it gave him great pleasure to notice not a drop fell near him. Indeed, by looking upward, he could see the falling raindrops stop short and then fly up toward the clouds. And he began to believe that the bald-headed inventor was really as great a man as he claimed to be. After descending the slippery path through the rocks, he crossed the patch of green and at last reached the sandy shore, where he found the baker's hat soaked through by rain. As he lifted it, he saw the crooked handle of the candy cane sticking out of the sand, and he drew it forth to find it was in excellent condition, little of the dampness having reached it. But now, as John Doe began to retrace his steps, he discovered his feet were soft and swollen for he had been walking on the damp ground and through the wet grass, and although no rain had fallen upon his body, his feet were getting to be in a dangerous condition, and the licorice in them had become sticky. After he had recrossed the grass and come to the edge of the rocks, he began to get frightened, for bits of his left heel now were starting to crumble and drop to the path, and when he tried walking on his flabby toes, they were so soggy and soft that he knew they would not last very long. While he paused, bewildered, another calamity overtook him, for the tube suddenly lost its power of repulsion and ceased to work, and the raindrops began to pelt his unprotected body and sink into his very flesh. He looked around with a groan of dismay and discovered a round hole, or tunnel, in the rock nearby. Staggering toward this, he entered the tunnel and found that no rain could now reach him. The floor was smooth and dry, and in the far distance he saw a light twinkling. Not daring to walk farther on his mushy feet, 
John got down on his hands and knees and began crawling toward the farther end of the tunnel. He made slow progress in that position, but soon he heard a noise of machinery and felt the warm air of a furnace coming to meet him. That gave him courage to proceed, and he crawled onward until he had reached a large circular chamber where a tall man with whiskers that resembled those of a billy goat was busy working among a number of machines. Hello? this personage exclaimed when he saw the gingerbread man. What have we here? The voice and eyes were alike kindly, so John told the man his story and asked permission to dry his feet at the glowing furnace. Make yourself at home, said the man, and turned to his work again. The place was lit by electricity and was warm and comfortable. John put his feet as near to the furnace as he dared, and soon felt the heat drying up his soaked feet. It was not long indeed before his entire body was as crisp and solid as ever, and then our hero stood upon his feet and found that the damage to his heel would not interfere much with his walking. "'What are you doing?' he asked the man. "'Making diamonds,' replied the other calmly. "'I suppose I am the only one in the world who ever succeeded in making real diamonds, but people did not believe in me, you see, so they sent me to the Isle of Freaks.' Here I have manufactured the finest diamonds the world has ever known, for no one interferes with my work. Look at these. He threw back the lid of a large tin box, and John saw that it was full to the brim with sparkling gems of clear white colour. Take some, though no use to me here, because I can't dispose of them. But I have the satisfaction of making them just the same. Help yourself. No, thank you. I have no use for diamonds, any more than you have. But the time may come when riches will be of great help to you, said the man, and picking out three of the very big stones, he began pressing them into John Doe's gingerbread body, one after the other. There, he exclaimed, they are now safely concealed, and if you ever need them, you can dig them out again and sell them. Those three stones should be worth uh, several thousand dollars if you ever get into the world again, where diamonds are valued. You are very generous, said John. Oh, no, not at all, I assure you, said the man, wagging his goat-like beard with every word he spoke. In this curious island, there's no value to anything whatever, not even to life. All I can do with my diamonds here is to stick them into the king's crown and scepter. So I'm getting a very big stock of them laid by. Very soon I shall begin studding the roof of the throne room with diamonds, and it will be a pretty sight to see when they glitter in one mass. Well, if it has stopped raining, I believe I will bid you goodbye. Oh, never mind the rain. Here is a winding staircase that leads directly upward into the castle. If you go that way, the rain can't reach you. The tunnel through which you entered is only used for ventilation. John thanked the good-natured diamond-maker and started to climb the stairs. There were a good many steps, but after a while he came to a gallery of the castle, and had little difficulty in finding the passage that led to his own room. As he walked along he heard the sound of a piano, and paused at an open door to peer within the room, for he imagined someone was pounding upon the keys of the piano with a sledgehammer. Immediately a fluffy-haired man looked up and saw him, and the next instant pounced upon the gingerbread man in much the same way that a cat would pounce upon a rat, and seized him fast and drew him into the room and closed and locked the door. 
John was astonished, but the fluffy-haired musician began pacing up and down the room, swinging his arms and shouting, I have it! I have it at last! I am great! I am magnificent! I am better than Wagner himself! He paused to glare upon John. Why don't you shout, you baked idiot? Why don't you weep with joy? It is great, I tell you, it is great! What is great? asked John, puzzled. The symphonic, the divine symphonic, you heartless molasses cake, or David's food, or whatever you are, and I composed it. Teach Jamas types. I am greater than Wagner. I did not hear it, said the gingerbread man. The musician threw himself upon the piano and produced a succession of such remarkable sounds that John was surprised. Did you understand it? demanded the fluffy-haired one, jumping up and down. No, said John. No, of course not. No one can understand it. It is genius. It will be played at all the great concerts. The critics will write columns in praise of it. Some folks can understand Wagner a little. No one understands me at all. I am wonderful. I am superb. Well, I am not in charge. It seemed to me like awful discord, said John. The musician threw himself upon his knees and burst into tears. Thank you, my friend, thank you. Oh, my dear friend. He paused between sobs. Such praise gladdens my heart and makes me very happy. Ah, oh, glorious moment in which I produce music that is not understood and sounds like discord. John left the musician still shedding tears of happiness and walked to his room. The people of this island are very peculiar, and I am very glad indeed that I am an ordinary gingerbread man and not a crank, he reflected. He found the bald-headed inventor of the power of repulsion awaiting him in the room. Well, how do the two please you? Is it not wonderful? he inquired. It's wonderful enough when it works, said John, but it suddenly quit working and nearly ruined me. Ah, oh, the power became exhausted, returned the man calmly. But that's nothing. It can be easily renewed. However, remarked John, I think that whenever anyone uses your tube as a protection from the rain, he should also carry an umbrella to use just in case of accident. An umbrella? Bah! cried the inventor, and left the room in a rage, slamming the door behind him. Presently, Chick returned, looking bright and happy as ever. But when the child heard the tale of John's wanderings in the rain, he received a sound scolding for being so careless. You mustn't pay attention to the inventors, said the cherub. This isle is full of them, and most of their inventions don't work. I've discovered that, said John. But they're good fun if you don't take them too seriously. And as it's going to rain all afternoon... I'll take you around the castle to make some calls on some of the cranks that are harmless. John readily agreed to this proposal, so Chick took his hand and led him through some of the wide halls, stopping frequently to call upon the different inventors and the scientific discoverers who inhabited the various rooms. They were all happy to see the pretty child and welcomed John Doe almost cordially. Chapter 6 The Lady Executioner one personage presented the gingerbread man with a smokeless cigar that he had recently invented, 
Another wanted him to listen to a noiseless music box, and was delighted when John declared he could hear nothing at all. A third wanted him to try a dish of hot ice cream made in a glowing freezer, and was grieved because the gingerbread man was constructed in such a way that it was impossible for him to eat. Really, I don't see the use of any of these things, said John. Oh, they're not useful at all, replied Chick, laughing. But these folks are all trying to do something queer, and most of them are doing it. Now we'll climb this tower, and I'll show you what I call a really fine invention. So up they climbed to the top of one of the turrets, winding round and round a narrow staircase, until they came upon a broad platform. And on this platform rested a queer machine that somewhat resembled a bird, for it had two great wings and a big body that glittered as brightly as if it were made of silver. While they stood looking at this odd contrivance, a door in the body of the bird opened, and a young man stepped out and greeted them. "'This is Imar,' said Chick. John thought him quite the most agreeable person in looks and manner that he had yet met on the Isle of Freaks, excepting, of course, his friend Chick. The young man had a sad face, but his eyes were pleasant and intelligent, and his brow thoughtful. In a few polite and well-chosen words he welcomed his guests. This is Imar, said Chick, introducing John, and he has invented a real flying machine. One that will fly? asked John curiously. Of course, said the baby. I've had many a ride in it, haven't I, Imar? To be sure, replied the young man. I have often taken Chick to ride as far as forty yards from the tower. If it did not rain just now, nothing would give me more pleasure than to prove to you that my invention will work perfectly. I see you have made it resemble a bird, remarked John, who was quite interested in the machine. Yes, said the dreamy Imar, and the reason I have succeeded in my invention is because I have kept close to nature's own design. Every muscle of a bird's wings is duplicated in this machine, but instead of being animated by life, I have found it necessary to employ electric batteries and motors. Perhaps the bird is not exactly as good as a real bird, but it will fly all right, as you shall see when I shall take you for a ride. He then allowed John to enter the tiny room in the body of the bird, which was just big enough to allow two to sit close together, and in front of the seat were various push-buttons and a silver lever, by means of which the flight of the machine was controlled. It's all very simple, said Imar proudly. Even Chick could guide the machine if properly instructed. The only fault of the invention is that the wings are too light to be very strong, and that is why I do not take it for very long trips. I understand, answered John. It's quite a distance to the ground if anything happened to break. True, acknowledged Imar sadly, and I do not wish to break my neck before I am able to make a bigger and better machine. That is not to be wondered at said John, and then he thanked the inventor and followed Chick down the winding stairs and through the hall until they again reached their own room, where they sat and talked until darkness came and drove the incubator baby to its snowy couch. As for the gingerbread man, he never required sleep or rest, so he sat quietly in a chair and thought of many things until the new day dawned. By morning the rain had ceased, and the sun arose in a blue sky and flooded the isle with its warm and brilliant rays. 
The incubator baby was so happy with this pleasant day that it fairly danced away to get its regular breakfast of milk and oatmeal. But John Doe's little friend was back at his side before long, and together they went hand in hand through the halls of the castle to the throne room of the kinglet. They found his majesty already seated in the throne, with the fat Nebby asleep at one side of him, and the girl executioner carefully sharpening her sword on the other. "'This is my busy day,' said the kinglet, nodding graciously to Chick and the gingerbread man. "'There are too many useless people in my kingdom, and I'm going to kill off some of them. Sit down and watch the flash of the executioner's sword.' Then he turned to his guards and commanded, "'Bring in the general!' Immediately they ushered before the king, a soldierly-looking man, clothed in a gorgeous uniform. His head was erect and his countenance calm and set. The eyes seemed dull and listless, and he walked stiffly as if his limbs were rheumatic. "'Sir, I salute you,' said the general in a hollow voice. "'Why am I brought here before you as a prisoner? I, the hero of a hundred battles.' "'You're accused of being foolish.' said the king, with a broad grin upon his freckled face. "'Sire, at the Battle of Waterloo, I—' "'Never mind the Battle of Waterloo,' interrupted his majesty. "'I'm told you are scattered all over the world as the result of your foolishness.' "'To an extent, sire, I am scattered, but it is the result of bravery, not foolishness.' He unstrapped his left arm and tossed it onto the floor before the throne. "'I lost that at Bull Run,' he said. Then he unhooked his right leg and cast it down. "'That sire was blown off at Sedan.' Then he suddenly lifted his right arm and seized his hair firmly, and lifted his head from his shoulders. "'It is true I lost my head at Santiago, but I could not help it.' John was astonished. The old general seemed to come to pieces very easily. He had tucked the head under his right elbow, and now stood before the kinglet on one foot, presenting a remarkably strange appearance. His majesty seemed interested. "'What is your head made of?' he asked. "'Wax, your majesty.' "'And what are your legs made of?' continued the kinglet. "'One is cork, sire, and the other I am standing on now is made of basewood.' "'And your arms?' "'Rubber, my kinglet.' "'You may go, General. "'There is no doubt you were very unwise to get so broken up, "'but there is nothing left for the royal executioner to do.' "'The girl sighed and felt the edge of a blade, "'and the old general replaced his head "'and had his leg and arm again strapped to his body by the guards "'and hobbled away after making a low bow before the throne. "'Just then a great noise of quarrelling and fighting "'was heard near the doorway.' and while all eyes were turned toward the sound, a wooden Indian sprang into the hall, waving a wooden tomahawk over his head and uttering terrible war-whoops. Following him came a number of the Brotherhood of Failings, trying to capture the Indian. The awkward one tripped up and fell flatly on his face. The unlucky one got in the way of the tomahawk and received a crack on the head that laid him low. The blunder was kicked on the shin so violently that he howled and limped away to a safe distance. But just before the throne, the disagreeable, the bad-tempered, and the ugly one managed to throw a rope around the Indian's arms and bind them fast to his body so that he ceased to struggle. "'What's the trouble?' 
asked the kinglet. Sir, said the Indian proudly, once I had the honor to be a beautiful sign in front of a cigar store, and now these miserable failings dare to insult me. He claims his name is Wart on the Nose, answered the disagreeable one, and anyone can see there's no Wart on his nose at all. So we decided to find him, added the ugly one. And he dared to resist, said the bad-tempered one. I am a great Indian chief, the Indian declared, scowling fiercely. I am made of oak, and my paint is the best ready mix that can be purchased. Why do you claim your name is Wart on the Nose, then? asked the kinglet. I have a right to call myself what I please, answered the Indian sulkily. Are not white girls called rose and violet when they are not that color? John Brown was white. Mary Green was white. If the white people deceive us about their names, I also have a right to deceive. Now, by my, my, my... The kinglet jabbed the fat man with his scepter. Halidom, yelled Nebby with a jump. By my halidom, said the kinglet. I will allow no one in my kingdom to tell an untruth. There being no wart on your nose, you must die the death. Executioner, do your duty. The failings tripped up the Indian, so he fell on his face. Then the girl advanced solemnly with her sword. Three times she swung the glittering blade around her head. Then she glanced at the kinglet and said, Well? Well what? asked his majesty. Is it a time to change your mind? I'm not going to change my mind in this case, said the kinglet. Chop off his head. At this the girl screamed and drew back. You really mean it? Of course. Oh, your majesty, I couldn't hurt the poor thing, sobbed the executioner. That would be simply awful. Please change your mind as you've always done. I won't, said the king sternly. You do as I tell you, Maria Simpson, or I'll, I'll have you executed next. The girl hesitated, then she took the sword in both her hands and shut her eyes, and struck downward with all her might. The blade fell upon the Indian's neck, and shivered it into several pieces. "'He's, he's wood, your majesty,' said the executioner. "'I simply can't cut off his head.' "'Get a meat cleaver!' cried the kinglet. "'Do you suppose I'll allow wart on the nose to live, when he hasn't a wart on his nose? Get the cleaver instantly!' So the girl brought a big meat cleaver and lifted it high in the air and struck the Indian's neck as hard as she could. The cleaver stuck fast in the wood, but it didn't cut far enough to do much harm on the victim. Indeed, Wart on the Nose even laughed, and then he said, There's a knot in that neck, a good oak knot. You couldn't chop my head off in a thousand years. The king that was annoyed. Pull out that cleaver, he commanded. The girl tried to obey, but the cleaver stuck fast. Then the failings tried one after another, but it would not bunch an inch. Never mind, leave it there, said the Indian, rolling over and getting upon his feet. It won't bother me in the least. In fact, it will make a curious ornament. Look here, Sir John Doe, said the kinglet, turning to the gingerbread man. What am I going to do? I've said the Indian must die because he has no wart on his nose. "'and I find I can't kill him now. "'Now you must either tell me how to get out of this scrape, "'or I'll cut your head off. "'And it won't be as hard to cut gingerbread as it is wood, I promise you.' "'This speech rather frightened John, for he knew he was in great danger. "'But after thinking for a moment, he replied, 
Why, it seems to me very easy to get out of this difficulty, your majesty. The Indian's only offence is that he has no wart on his nose. But that's the great offence, cried the kinglet. Well, let us whittle a wart onto his nose, then, said John, and then all will be well. The kinglet looked at him in astonishment. Can that be done? he asked. Certainly, your majesty, it is only necessary to carve away some of the wood of his nose and leave a wart. I will do it, then, shouted the kinglet in great delight. At once he sent for the royal carpenter and had the man whittle the Indian's nose until a beautiful wart showed plainly on the very end. Good, said the king. Good, echoed the Indian proudly. Now none of those miserable failings dare say my name is not suitable. I'm very sorry about that cleaver, remarked the kinglet. You'll have to carry it round wherever you go. It's all right. I'll add to my name and call myself Wart on the Nose and Cleaver in the Neck. That'll be a fine Indian name, and no one can prove it's not correct. Saying this, the wooden Indian bowed to the kinglet and gave a furious war-whoop, and then stalked stiffly from the room. Bring on the next prisoner, shouted the kinglet and both Chick and John gave a gasp of surprise as Imar was brought into the room. The inventor of the flying machine, however, did not seem the least bit frightened, and bowed calmly before the throne. "'What's the charge against this man?' inquired the kinglet. "'He's accused of being a successful inventor,' said one of the guards. "'The other inventors claim no one who succeeds has a right to live on the Isle of Freaks.' "'Quite right,' replied his majesty. "'Cut his head off, Maria.' "'Alas, sire, my sword is broken,' she exclaimed. "'Then get another.' "'But I have no other sword that is sharpened,' she protested. "'Then sharpen one,' retorted the kinglet, frowning. "'Certainly, your majesty, but a sword cannot be properly sharpened in a minute. "'It will take until tomorrow at least to get it ready.' "'Fine, then I'll postpone the execution until tomorrow morning at nine o'clock.' If you're not ready by that time, I'll get a new royal executioner, and you will lose your job. I'll be ready, said the girl, and walked away arm in arm with the sad young man on whom she smiled sweetly. It's all right, whispered Chick to John. Imar won't get hurt, for the king will forget all about him by tomorrow. And now, my gods, said his majesty, stretching his arms and yawning, bring hither my two-legged horse. "'and I may take a ride round my kingdom.' "'So presently the guards led in a big raw-boned nag "'that had two legs instead of four, "'and these two were set in the middle of its body. "'It seemed rather frisky and pranced around in a nervous manner, "'so that the kinglet had a great deal of difficulty "'in mounting the horse's back, "'whereon was a saddle made of purple velvet and cloth of gold. "'Hold still, can't you?' cried the kinglet. "'I can, but I won't,' said the horse in a cross tone, for it appeared the animal was able to talk. "'I'll thrash you sadly if you don't behave,' screamed the kinglet. "'I'll kick you in the ribs if you dare to threaten me,' returned the horse, laying back its ears. "'Why, you miserable little freckle-faced kinglet, I could run around with you and break your neck if I wanted to.' "'That's true,' said his majesty meekly. I beg your pardon for my harsh words. Let us be friends by all means. 
The horse snorted as if with contempt, and the guards finally managed to hoist the little kinglet to his seat upon the animal's back. "'Roll away that beast!' cried the horse. His majesty obeyed at once. "'Now,' said the animal, "'you sit still and behave yourself, or I'll dump you over my head. Do you understand?' "'I understand,' said the kinglet. "'Very good,' declared the horse. "'When you're on your throne, you're a tyrant, but when you're on horseback, you're a coward, because you're at my mercy and you know it. Now we're off.' The beast pranced down the hall and out of the arched entrance, bearing the kinglet upon his back. When they were gone, John and Chick started to take a walk along the beach of the seashore, but no sooner had they stepped into the courtyard than an awful yell saluted their ears, and before them stood the form of the terrible Arab. "'He must have broken loose!' cried Chick. "'Let's run, John Doe, before he can eat you!' At once John turned to fly, with Chick grasping his hand to urge him on. Ali Dub had indeed succeeded in breaking through the iron grating of his prison, and had even managed to untie his hands. But his legs were still firmly bound together from ankles to his knees, so that he could only move toward them by hopping. Nonetheless, at the sight of the gingerbread man, who was mixed with his precious elixir, the Arab began bounding toward his victim with long hops, and had John and Chick not run so fast as they did, it is certain the Arab would soon have overtaken them. Through the throne room they fled, with Ali Dub just behind them, and then they began mounting the marble stairways to the upper stories of the castle. Their pursuer, not daunted at all by his bound legs, hopped up the stairs after them with remarkable swiftness. Hurry! cried Chick. Hurry, John Doe, or you'll be eaten!